I would uh, I would say there are two things that I'm obsessing about recently. One is uh, is a global warming, and the other is um, you know augmentation. We've talked a little bit about augmentation in the last video conference video recording that you did, um, but you know global warming is something that strikes me as a, a very interesting social phenomenon, scientific challenge, uh, because what you have is, from the social side, you've got this case where you've got denialism, which to me is more important. I mean, you have denialism on a bunch of points. You know, you have uh, denial of the Holocaust. You've got denial of evolution. But those aren't things that necessarily, in and of themselves, impact our lives. I mean, it's very heartrending and callous that they deny the Holocaust. But as long as they don't add to that a lot of other racism, nobody's going to get really hurt by it. And evolution, even people in my companies, you know, which work on evolution on a daily basis, like I have a company called Innovolve, uh, which has evolution in its title. I imagine that we could probably populate that company mostly with employees that are uh, creationists and they would still get the products out because you know you follow a recipe and and even though you're doing evolution you don't need to believe it right um, now maybe the very very top scientists it would help if they actually believed in neo-darwinism or something but anyway so that you have this so those are curious things where people fight about them and have deep feelings about them but they don't really affect day-to-day -day life Global warming is something that, that could be catastrophic. Uh, I mean, you could argue it's in the same category because it, you can't prove that my life today is worse because of global warming. Um, but it's something where it could be exponential. I mean, the odds are against it, maybe, but we don't really even know how to calculate the odds. It's not like we're playing blackjack or poke or something like that, it's, it's, it's like uh, that, sh that there's um, more carbon in the Arctic tundra than in the entire atmosphere plus all the rainforest put together. And that carbon, unlike the rainforest where you have to burn the rainforest to release it, um, that carbon goes in the atmosphere as soon as, it, as, soon as you get melting and you're, so it's already uh, many gigatons per year going up. Um, and so that's something that could spiral out of control. And all of almost all the suggestions, even for the most uh, sort of ultra-concerned citizens, almost all the suggestions are not how to prevent a exponential release, but how to slow down the inevitable. And uh, and that's kind of like. It's kind of like the extinction problem. If you don't have a way of reversing it, it's not so much we have to have the extinction. It's that if you don't have a way of reversing it, then you're fighting a losing battle. Um, and that's not, it's not psychologically a good thing. It's hard to get uh, you know, enthusiastic funding for it. And, and you will ultimately fail. So, so, so uh, you know, whether it's solar panels or... Um, uh, you know, not using your SUVs as much, or not buying SUVs, having smaller houses, just all of these things are slowing down the inevitable, and it's hard to get excited about it. The other thing that, that, that I think is problematic socially is the whole idea that it's an inconvenient truth. I think to some extent Gore's phrase is brilliant, but to another extent it's, it's counterproductive because the people for who it is inconvenient don't want to believe that don't don't want to believe this inconvenient. They don't want to deal with something that's inconvenient. They want they don't want to give up their SUVs and their and their steak uh, meals and so forth. And so uh, so what would be better would be to talk about uh, a convenient solution. Whether or not that's the real solution or the best solution what just talk about it so you get you get acceptance first. You need acceptance before you can get to the best solution. And the other part, the other part that makes acceptance difficult is blame. Is
people will say it's not my fault. And that, and that gets confused into it's not anybody's fault. It's none of our faults. It's not, it's not, it's not anthropocentric. It's not caused by human beings. You could make an argument it's not your fault because you weren't around during the Industrial Revolution. You didn't personally do that much. You know, you're, you're just one seven billionth of the problem at most. Um, so you could make an argument that you're not personally, but, but then expanding that to no human being has had anything to do with it is where things go off the, the tracks. But it really, the, the thing that got us into the position of denial was the blame game. It's like, you know, you want everybody to be inconvenienced because it's their fault. And so that's two strikes against you. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've read The Righteous Mind, uh, but you know, he makes the point that, that, that most people, even very people that consider themselves very rational, they're, they're not using a rational argument and then deciding. They're deciding and then using the rational argument to rationalize. And, you know, a lot of what he says sounds obvious once you restate it, but the way he says it backs it up with, uh, with uh, you know, so social science research, um, I found very um, uh, illuminating, uh, if not compelling. And uh, anyway, so I think that's what happens is that the, the elephant, as he refers to it, the, the, the thing that's making your decisions in your life, is deciding that this person is telling you that you're responsible for something you don't feel responsible for and is telling that you have to sacrifice many things that you don't want to sacrifice, that person is inconvenient and they're incorrect from your viewpoint and, and you're going to ignore them. And the, and the more they insult you and your way of life, the less you're going to listen to them. And then you're going to make a bunch of rationalizations about, about that. So I think that these are, these are why uh, we have problems. So let's reframe it as you're not responsible necessarily, um, but here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity. Let's, let's say nature caused this global warming and maybe this global warming could get worse. Let's not even say that it has gotten to a, a horrible place. I mean, we're at 400 parts per, per million. Um, uh, maybe that's too far. Um, but let's just say that it could get much, it could get exponentially worse. That risk is very high because if it keeps going exponential, you'll eventually consume all of the carbon dioxide and all the methane that's right below the surface. And we know there's tons of methane in the cold water and uh, that, that could be released. And methane is 28 times, by the way, worse global warming gas than carbon dioxide. So all this stuff could result in melting of all the ice. And then, um, and then you could get to temp temperatures that aren't necessarily without in in the in the historical record. Um, you know, we keep kind of there's a tendency to say to use the history as uh, indicator of the future. And of course, the SEC warns us against doing this. You know, when, when you're investing in stocks, uh, but um, there is a non-zero probability that that we could go somewhere that is without historical precedent. Uh, I mean, look at Venus. I mean, Venus has an atmosphere that's you know, 95 times higher pressure and um, temperatures that would carbonize uh, life. Um, and at one point, something must have happened in its history that had never happened before and was irreversible at that point. And we don't want Earth to turn into Venus, I don't think. Um, so, um, so if you stop blaming and start talking about opportunities, what could we do? Let's say it's, it's natural. We do lots of things that are unnatural. I mean, it's natural would be to let weeds grow all over the planet instead of planting crops. The fact is that was an opportunity. It was, it's not your fault that the world was, was not covered with beautiful crops. It's your opportunity to cover it with beautiful crops. And the, and the same thing would happen is if an asteroid were headed our way, or if we had uh, seismic information that there was going to be some supervolcano, it wouldn't be your fault. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't deny the possibility that the human race should band together and solve the problem proactively, anticipating 
possible disaster, even if it's not guaranteed, even if it's not guaranteed that asteroid is going to hit us. But if it's big enough and it's headed our way, we would band together as, uh, as a population and fight it. So, uh, um, so then, so then, then how, so, so once you get past that, not my fault, it's not, and it's not necessarily inconvenient, it's an opportunity, then you get to the science and engineering aspects, which I think is more interesting. I probably started seriously in the 90s when I got interested in photosynthesis. We, we published some papers uh, together with Penny Chisholm, who's a professor at MIT, um, on uh, the most abundant um, photosynthetic organism on the planet. So there are, you know, on the order of uh, 10 to the 23 of these organisms on the planet. Uh, uh, it's a mind-boggling number of them. And they were, um, and nobody knew about them before Penny started working on them. She and uh, people would look at the ocean and they'd see something that looks pretty close to sterile. I mean, occasionally a fish would, would float by, but uh, there's, uh, <clears throat> uh, if, you, if you scoop up the ocean, you'll find diatoms and, and a few heterotrophs, uh, various kinds of, uh, of uh, uh, phytoplankton and zooplankton, uh, things that, that whales might filter feed. Um, but it, it's not that dense. It's not like what you would get from... Uh, uh, you know, a pond covered, scum covered pond, or from, you know, the excrement of animals, which is solid uh, life, solid bacteria, you know, uh, more bacterial cells in just two kilograms of your intestines than in the whole rest of your body. Um, but, in, but anyway, in the ocean, even though they're the dilute, there are more of these photosynthetic organisms in the rest. And the reason people missed them is because they were so small. They're even smaller than the bacteria that people notice. Um, you, you can, they just look like little blips on, in the microscope. They look like they might be a mistake or a little speck of something that isn't real. Um, but what she noticed is they were highly fluorescent and she and, and, then, and, and eventually figured out how to culture them. And they don't culture very well either. So even, I used to think of the ocean as a, as a, uh, harsh and dynamic environment and anything that survived there had to be very versatile and could handle all the the, the differences in storms and different sunlight and so forth. but these things are really really fussy fragile creatures even though they're they're the most one of the most abundant creatures on the planet and if you get the iron concentration or the copper concentration just a little bit off a little bit too much or too little they say, eh, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm dead, forget about it. You know? So they're very, they're very fastidious for the most part, these cyanobacteria, these blue-green algae. Um, anyway, that's how I got, that's one of the things that got me interested in it. Of course I was interested in it even before that as a, as a kid, as a teenager, um, you know, when, when Earth Day was getting started, you know, that was, that was obviously interesting. But the, my first scientific papers on it were having to do with these cyanobacteria. And I think cyanobacteria might be part of the solution as well to the problem. Right. Yeah, so how does this relate to my genome work? Uh, so um, the way we met Penny is we were, we were technology developers. I mean, most of my interesting collaborations came because I had a technology and either people would, would seek me out to, so they could use the technology or I would seek them out so they would have a good use for it. And I've had a Department of Energy funding ever since I started my laboratory in 1986-87. Uh, uh, in fact, it's the only grant that I've had continuously since 1987. And, uh, and it started out that I was developing technology for the Human Genome Project. And then I thought that wow, it's the Department of Energy, we should be taking this technology developed for the Human Genome Project, which really isn't in the purview of the Department of Energy. I mean, they have a health effects co component, but much more in their realm was uh, microorganisms that impact energy. And the biggest energy um, creators in the world, the ones that 
take solar energy and turn it into a form that's useful to humans are these photosynthetic organisms. And the cyanobacteria turn out that they fix light uh, as well or better than, than land plants. Um, under certain circumstances, uh, ideal circumstances, they can be maybe seven to ten times more productive um, per photon. So anyway, I, I think I sought out pennies uh, because I, was, I had this genome hammer, uh, you know, I had a set of tools for analyzing genomes and transcriptomes, the RNA, and pro proteome, so DNA, RNA, proteins, and I thought we should apply it to something that would be of benefit to the energy community, to the Department of Energy. And Penny and I collaborated until there was a reorganization of the Department of Energy where we were encouraged to get separate grants rather than doing it together on one grant. Um, but it left a lasting impression on me because she, she came from a very different culture than I did. She was technically uh, in the Department of Civil Engineering at, at MIT, and I'm clearly not a civil engineer. Um, but moreover, she was an ecologist. She, she, was, that was, she, she loves the oceans and, the, and these um, photosynthetic bacteria and this is, this is her life, and, and so I, I learned to appreciate it from her viewpoint, um, and that was, that was great. Um, but, I, but I'm always a technologist, uh, the same way she's always a biologist, and, and I kept thinking, well, how can we use these cyanobacteria to solve energy problems? Um, so one of the companies I started was called Juul. Um, like most of the biofuel companies, it was a uh, it was a, I knew it was going to be a very difficult problem, not just scientifically, which I think we did spectacularly on the science, it was going to be a difficult problem from a social and economic standpoint. Because at any moment, the price could, uh, per barrel could be engineered downward. Uh, very, I mean, it's just trivial for OPEC or any, any, anybody else in that, in that business to, uh, temporarily drop the price to the point where it destabilizes all the competing technologies and then drive it back up again at their leisure. So, uh, but anyway, it struck me as an, as an important problem, an interesting one, and I wanted to become more conversant with it. And so we, we uh, um, both at Juul and at LS9, we discovered ways that you could turn carbon dioxide or other carbon compounds into uh, alkanes, that is to say that the things that make up gasoline and diesel fuel, they're, they're, they're long a polymer of carbons with hydrogens coming off of so hydrocarbon, and those things are, uh, we figured out how to make those um, enzymatically. We found the enzymes that occur in nature, it was not obvious, um, and both companies had patents on, on making those alkanes. And the survival of, of those kinds of biofuel companies have depended on them creating more and more valuable chemicals, not solving the energy problem, unfortunately. Um, and so some of them have survived, like amorous has actually, actually thrived by, by pivoting a little bit from biofuels to you know, uh, flavors, fragrances, uh, other high value um, biochemicals. It, it's not in my mainstream of, of technology development or even in applications of our technology, um, but we do have modest efforts that at a minimum help uh, raise consciousness and, move, and sometimes it takes a, very, a relatively small suggestion or demonstration to make a big change. Uh, and certainly that's happened to us in the past, you know, a small contribution to DNA sequencing or DNA editing or DNA synthesis has caused you know millionfold changes in the economics of those fields. Um, in this case, the one we're most known for, which is a really really tiny project in the lab, but has gotten a disproportionate share of attention, it uh, and in a certain way is performance art. It's it's like it's it's uh, it's uh, getting mammoths, getting cold resistant getting uh, elephants to stomp around and, and change the temperature of the, of the soil in the Arctic because 
you know, there's so much carbon in it, you don't want the soil to raise in temperature. There's experimental evidence that that, uh, that sort of activity could reduce the soil temperature. But the fact is that even if that were spectacularly successful, it is just another one of the many methods of slowing down the inevitable. In other words, if you lower the temperature of the Arctic tundra, you don't reverse the carbon problem. You're missing the opportunity of improving uh, the, or changing in a, an intentional way the amount of carbon and other global warming gases. Um, it's like solar panels and um, um, belt tightening efforts, uh, you know, lowering your con consumption uh, and uh, things like that. It's, it's just, but with the, the cyanobacteria on the other hand, they fix, they turn carbon dioxide, a global warming gas, into um, carbohydrates and other carbon-containing polymers which sequester the carbon. They do not, uh, uh, they're no longer global warming gases. They're not methane or carbon dioxide. The problem is that, and they, and they turn it into their own bodies. The problem is that it, almost as soon, and they do, they do it on a big scale. So they do it at a level where um, about 15% maybe of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is fixed every year by these cyanobacteria, um, which is roughly the amount that we're off from the pre-industrial era. So if, if all of the material that they fixed in a year or two didn't turn back into carbon dioxide, we'd have solved the global warming problem in a year or two. But the reality is that almost as soon as they divide and make baby bacteria, um, phage hit them and break them open and they spill their guts and then they start turning into carbon dioxide. Other, other things around them start chomping on the, the bits left over from the phages. So these phages are, uh, uh, so if you could make the cyanobacteria resistant to the phages, then you might be able to reduce that. And even a small reduction in that immediate turnover from carbon comes in, gets fixed into carbohydrates, and then the, the, the cell protecting those carbohydrates breaks open and then all the, the hungry heterotrophs around them eats it and turns it back into carbon dioxide. If you could break that cycle even a little bit, um, you'd start sequestering carbon dioxide. Yeah. So where are these uh, bacteria in the, in the real world? They are in all the oceans of the world, all the lakes, all the rivers, uh, every, every body of water is filled with these bacteria. Now there are different strains and different, you know, there's a fresh water set and there's a deep water set and so forth, but the, they're as a class, photosynthetic bacteria, and they are so simple, they're point-like. They're, they're, they're not colonies for the most part. Uh, some of them are, but most of the ones on top, the abundant ones that do most of the photosynthesis, they're, they're rugged individuals. They're out there by themselves doing their thing, fixing carbon, and they're at great risk. The phages are also everywhere. There's about 10 times as many phage, phages, which are barely alive, they're parasites, they're in every ocean and every lake and every stream as well, and they're constantly killing the bacteria. So the, the bacteria, the, 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 the main, bac, uh, the, the most abundant ones, cyanobacteria or prochlorococcus is a particularly abundant one, they're so small that you can't really see them under a conventional microscope, uh, the ones that we've been using for centuries. There are some super resolution microscopes where you can see some detail, and certainly electron microscopes you can see them, but under, you certainly can't see them in the naked eye. You pick up a glass of, of ocean water, it doesn't even look green. Okay, there's no even, there's not even like a bulk measurement that makes it look like they're there. But, under, but if you, but they are there, you can see them with electron microscopes and they're very small. And of course the phages that destroy them are even smaller. Those can only be seen by electron microscopes uh, uh, at, at the best resolution. And they're just, they're tiny killing machines that that really just have DNA and RNA plus a protein coat and they go in and they take over the cell.
But slowly, I think, you know, the world has come to see what an important part of the ecosystem is, but nobody really discusses it as a serious way of dealing with carbon sequestration. And I could be completely off base, but I think it's in, it, in, in, in saying that, that we should give this a thorough look. Uh, is there a way that we could harness this incredible amount of photosynthesis and use it to turn carbon dioxide and water into carbohydrates and just have that sequestered? It's, it's ironic that one of the big efforts in, um, in uh, biotechnology has been making biodegradable plastics. I mean, that's been considered a great success story. But ironically, what we really want to do is make non-degradable, or, or certainly not, not easily degradable, uh, plastics out of the carbon dioxide. We want to sequester carbon dioxide into things that don't turn over. And the problem with the cyanobacteria is, is they... They, they do turn over. The phage break them open, and then with their guts open, then all the other bacteria eat them. While they're intact, they're in pretty good shape. Uh, so, um, so they're really good at fixing the carbon. They're just not good at keeping it fixed. So if we could change that, um, then the amount of, of photosynthetic capability is vast, and we could quickly... Um, start pulling carbon dioxide out of the, out of the air. Uh, there are two options that, that, that ties into my research. In, in addition to the older research where he, we had, uh, with Penny, elucidated many of the characteristics of these organisms, um, my newer research is about synthetic biology where we can make bacteria that are resistant to all phages. Um, We've um, done a demonstration project in E. coli where we've changed the genetic code. Where we've by by um, it's one of the the largest um, genome engineering projects where we had to change um, hundreds of genes in a, in a particular way. This is not just arbitrarily making a copy of a genome. This is engineering hundreds of genes, not one or two or a few, so that that you could change the genetic code where you could remove from the cell something that phages depend on. In fact, the cell depends on it. Normally, you couldn't remove it from the cell. It was an essential gene. Um, but by moving around the genetic code, the so-called synonymous, so the, the codon table, there's 64 codons for 21 functions, 20 amino acids plus stop. And so that means there's extra codons. So you can move things around in that extra space, and then that makes it possible for you to delete um, the thing that was previously essential. Now when the phage comes in, it can't set up shop. It can't do anything because it's missing something that is absolutely essential for us. It, it used to be essential for the host, but the host has been taken to the shop and made it so it's non-essential and deleted it, but the phage wasn't present during that transaction. And so the phage is still dependent on it, and so it can't grow. And not only can't grow, it's so messed up by this change that it can't even evolve. It can't, it, it's not, so, so like, you know, like you can develop drug-resistant viruses or even um, there's a constant warfare where the bacteria becomes a little resistant to the phage and the phage becomes resistant to the resistance and you keep playing this little cat and mouse game. But in this case, you've changed it so radically that the phage can't evolve. This is... Most of this is a pretty strong theoretical argument. Some of it is backed up by now experiments since we've changed one, we've made one genome which is, has a changed genetic code. So how does this go from the lab into the real world? Well, so this, this, the, the organism we've done, the, the, the largest genome engineering project on so far is E. coli. It's an industrial microorganism. It does have a phage problem. And so the hope is that um, when we uh, perfect the strain which is resistant to all viruses, all E. coli bacteriophages, that will then become the favorite E. coli to use in industry. There's a bunch of things we have to do to make sure that it manufactures the things that industry cares about as well as being phage resistant because if we're just phage resistant and didn't manufacture well, they're not going to take it. So it has to have all this. So that'll be the first, probably the first product that where we engineer something and it gets into the real world via um, res resistant to all phages. So they don't even have to worry quite so much about phages. They certainly don't have to worry about phages they've never seen before. 
um, which is a profound thought that you can be resistant to viruses and phages you've never seen before. Um, uh, you don't have to make a specific drug or a specific vaccine or a specific strategy for that, that particular virus. Then, so then, then we need to do it again, but now on new bacteria. Maybe starting with other bacteria that are, have industrial and agricultural significance, like bacteria involved in the dairy industry, yogurt and cheese. Those have a big phage virus problem. Um, then you might want to do it on these cyanobacteria, these photosynthetic organisms, and show that you can make them resistant to phages and determine whether that increases their productivity, whether they now fix a lot of carbon and the carbon stays fixed. Um, there's a, there, and, and what's interesting is this doesn't necessarily involve vast amounts of money. I mean, it could, it could, I mean, it could save vast amounts of money. I mean, we're, we're talking about essentially the entire economy is at, is at risk. Um, but like many things in early stage science and engineering, it's highly leveraged. You know, you know, uh, $100,000 or, you know, a couple million dollars can get you a breakthrough that is transformative and self-fueling from that point on. Once it's obvious, once you've made the break uh, through that makes it obvious, then, then there's plenty of money, there's plenty, uh, there's plenty of will to scale it up. Even though this might make sense from an existential risk standpoint, it might make sense from, from a society-wide standpoint, it could be a tragedy of the commons where we can't figure out um, how individuals can benefit, how individual companies or countries can benefit. We can see it how if we did it, it would be a great benefit, especially it would be a great benefit if the most, uh, were ex if you have an exponential increase in temperature and release of, of global warming gases. Um, but I'm always looking for the win-win, you know, something where you don't necessarily have to sacrifice, where you don't necessarily have to make a crazy investment. Um, and, I, and I think that, uh, you know, the biofuels was one, strategy wasn't it we knew uh, there wasn't necessarily uh, an easy path um, where you get companies interested in engineering these organisms um, another one might be carbon credits to the extent that those are accepted um, this would be a good way of achieving carbon credits but the final and I think the most uh, interesting way is if you take the carbohydrates that these organisms make and turn them into something valuable. In other words, if you have something that's, that is non-biodegradable and of value, so, so, so you take the advantage of the fact that these things are self-assembling, that, that biology tends to build um, with that. It can build very large structures with very little management. So if you want to have a forest, um, you pretty much just don't interfere with it and you'll have a forest, right? Um, uh, it might, you know, the ecology might go one way or another, but it, it, is, it, it will fill the land with photosynthetic organisms unless you interfere with it on a regular basis. Um, the same thing could happen in the ocean with a little, little nudge, is you could have, this is very whimsical and intentionally uh, playful, but you could have these things fix the carbon into a structure that was valuable. So let's say um, a bridge across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, right? Uh, you could make floating cities, you could make things that have intrinsic value and that because of their self-assembly nature um, don't cost a lot of money. Um, uh, they can involve as much, they can create as many jobs as you want to create, but they don't have to. You could conceivably do it where the, the bacteria are doing all the work, just as in the forests, if you have, a, you know, if, if, a, if a volcano or some other forest fire clears the land, um, you don't have to do that much. It's going gonna, it's gonna to create a forest there. So, but here you'd have to nudge it in some kind of engineered way. But again, the engineering and the science behind it isn't, isn't nearly, a, isn't even in the same league of cost as most uh, of industry and all the money that, that uh, is at risk.
due to uh, temperature change? Well, I think any book that is about or adjacent to an existential risk needs to, or ideally would, raise consciousness about that existential risk. It might, it might, the goal might be to calm people down, or it might be to rile people up. But you, sh you should, uh, ideally, the book should either come to a conclusion or argue why it's premature to come to a conclusion. Uh, about whether this is a sufficiently big existential risk to to uh, apply resources. Now, um, you know, when I look at all the existential risks, and I've, I've, I kind of um, am obsessed with with the basic idea. I think we should, well, at least think about existential. If we're technology developers. In particular, we should think about those part of our time. Some of our time should be set aside to talking to the public. Some of it should be set to you know ethical standards and, and safety and security, and part of it should be towards big existential risk questions. Even if they're low probability of happening during our lifetime or our kids, um, but especially things that could happen exponentially, that could happen much, that could speed up. And, I, and it seems like almost everything that I get close to uh, and care about is exponential. And, and on a time scale that's interesting, meaning that these exponentials in computers, electronics, DNA reading and writing, these are all things where I'm seeing million-fold changes in less than a decade. Um, I can imagine that happening with some of these other things. I mean, an asteroid could come out of nowhere. Um, we would have very little time to react. Uh, uh, global warming could go exponential, and we would have relatively little time to react. Much better, and, it, and in some cases, it's better to overreact to a, a, an imaginary problem or problem that could materialize um, than to underreact um, and not have enough time. And then, because you start making bad decisions when you don't have enough time. So, for example, Y2K. We don't know whether that was a big crisis or not. It turned out it was a fizzle in the end, but was it a fizzle because we reacted to it in advance? In fact, many of the things where safety engineers and security experts are most effective, they get least credit for because they were so effective that no one even ever knew it was a problem, right? But anyway, I think the reason that we push back on existential risks where we have unknown or low probabilities is because it's going to be inconvenient, because it's going to make us have to sacrifice. If we can come up with a win-win, however, where we don't know the probability, but we know that the consequences are, are huge, but we can come up with a clever solution that doesn't require much sacrifice, doesn't require a lot of money to fund the solution, doesn't require uh, that the solution doesn't require us to give up all of our sacred cows, or any of our sacred And now that's easy to say, harder to pull off, but there, but I've seen them, again, in my life. I've seen many cases of win-win, you know, so rather than having the gut-wrenching decision of whether we should sequence your genome or mine at $3 billion, we just said, let's just bring it down to $1,000, and then we could do both of them, right? So that's a win-win. We didn't have to have a big national debate as to who gets sequenced and who doesn't. You know, we didn't have to have death panels as to, you know, who gets the benefit from this new technology, who doesn't. So for AI, I think the main uh, risk, from my mind, is it's not so much whether we can mathematically understand what they're thinking. It's whether we're capable of teaching them ethical behavior. We're barely capable of teaching each other ethical behavior. We're barely capable of agreeing on what it is. But over long periods of time and, and uh, over large numbers of cultures, we tend to agree on enough that things might even be improving, that they're, they're acceptable. They're acceptable enough so that our population is growing, um, our middle class, and even maybe our upper class is growing in numbers. Uh, and um, if Steven Pinker is correct about, and others, about uh, violence decreasing, 
Maybe, maybe our ethics is good enough. Even though we can't reach consensus, maybe it's good enough. But we bring in a wild card. Uh, and let's say we uh, um, teach uh, octopus. We, we genetically engineer octopus so it's brilliant and can and manipulate uh, uh, bombs and rockets and, and things like that. We have no idea how an octopus thinks. We have no idea why it would, why its ethics would align with ours at all. If we teach a, uh, a dog, we've got a slightly better chance because dogs are a little bit more aligned with humans, a little bit closer. But if we teach a piece of, of uh, you know, silicon, we don't know that they're we're, that they're going to uh, to follow our rules. And you could say, well, um, well, we won't necessarily they won't necessarily be doing human tasks. They'll be you know, they'll be um, calculating big sums of numbers, they'll be doing all the statistics that are really boring, they'll be doing, you know, advertising. Well, oh, wait a minute, they're doing advertising, that's starting to influence human life. Oh, they'll be, they'll be guiding drones. Well, that's start, that could affect the human being. It, they'll be manipulating markets. Okay, so they're starting to do things that could really impact our lives. They're not just doing boring uh, mechanical tasks. We better make sure that their ethics are somewhat aligned with ours. And since we haven't reduced our own ethics to consensus or mathematics, it's all done by gut feeling. It's, no matter how much rationalization we've, we wrap around it, it's mostly gut feeling. It's mostly, it's a combination of instincts and deep culture, um, admittedly multicultural, but there's something that we have in common that pushes the right direction. So I am, doubtful that we can uh, guarantee or even come close. I mean, we never let guarantees interfere with technology. We always do take the technology. We're very greedy. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that there will be general con consensus maybe that, that, this, uh, that we can't teach these things ethics. Um, um, so the alternative is teaching ourselves how to be as clever as the machines, okay? So rather than trying to teach them ethics, teach ourselves to do the tasks that they're currently doing. And it's not so far-fetched because right now for a machine to beat a human at Jeopardy or Go or Chess, which by the way aren't really, um, what, aren't, aren't really tasks that we need to do, right? They were always sort of luxury, show-off, bragging things, right? I mean, uh, except for game playing as an end in itself, our ancestors did not depend on being able to win those games. They, they were representative of, 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 of intellectual skills that would be beneficial, like the ability to uh, be a good business person. But in any case, in order for a computer to win at those games, uh, they have to use 100,000 watts of power continuously. Um, while a human brain is using 20 watts. Now admittedly, the body it's in is using another 80 watts. And maybe that body, you know, has creature comforts that require some more watts. But the fact is we're, we're very energy efficient for doing this. And by the way, we're doing a lot more than losing the game of chess, go, and jeopardy. We're, we're worrying about our family, we're worrying about our career, we're worrying about existential risks. We're doing all kinds of things that computers can't yet do. So the, the thing is we're ahead and biotechnology is going faster than computer technology. So corporations are kind of like um, machines in that they, corporations behave like people. They have some of the rights of citizens. Uh, they've been granted certain rights. Uh, but they're also like machines in that they don't, uh, that we don't know that the ethics of companies are going to perfectly coincide with people. The difference is that those are machines made out of people, and so there is some hope that you could, that they might more naturally align their ethics with, with the population. And to some extent, even when people talk about evil corporations, what they really mean, I think, is that the customers that are supporting the corporations want things that are not in their own best interests. In other words, like, uh, you know, 
um, I would buy, if 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 I bought cigarettes, I would be supporting a company that's that's giving me cancer, but I'm the one that's doing it. I mean, maybe they did an ad campaign that sucked me in, and that makes them evil. But I paid for that ad campaign um, ultimately. So, um, but anyway, corporations can have problem ethical problems because they're composed in a way that's not culturally and biologically aligned perfectly with the people that make up the, the corporation. And I think that could happen with the, the big five you know, AI-related companies. Uh, or it could be that they are perfectly aligned with the population, hypothetically, um, in terms of ethics, but they don't know how to teach the, the machine's ethics. There might even be a consensus that's derivable on the, about the importance of value alignment. I mean, there's so many people that think about it at all, think, end up in that direction. It, it may be something we could agree on as a goal, but we may not be able, I think very few of us would have a clue as to how to actually achieve that goal. It's like we can all agree it would be nice to, or not all of us, but we could uh, get some agreement that it would be nice to eliminate poverty, diseases of poverty, diseases in general, um, etc. But we don't know how to, we, we can't write a recipe for that. And I think the same thing goes for value alignment. We can agree that it's kind of a cool thing, but how do you do that? How do you convince yourself you've done it? We are definitely living in exponential times where many of these things are reinforcing each other. We're, getting, we're using deep machine learning to accelerate our um, biological research. We might soon be using the biological research to accelerate the production of uh, better algorithms. Um, like we have a, a grant from uh, IARPA that's aimed at improving uh, visual deep machine learning by figuring out exactly how a rodent processes visual information in its visual cortex. That could result in much better algorithms. It could be that some of the brain initiative projects or other projects that allow us to build brains, allow us to build uh, human brains that are more consistent with our ethics but still capable of doing advanced tasks like artificial intelligence. But now you'd have to call it you, artificial intelligence has the connotation of silicon-based. You'd have to give it a new name, uh, you know, superintelligence or or human-based intelligence to distinguish it both from artificial intelligence and human intelligence. I think the safest path by far is getting humans to do all the tasks that they would like to delegate to machines. Um, uh, but we're not obviously on that 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 super safe path. Um, but anyway, there's this confluence of, of technologies where we have auto-catalytic cycles. That is to say, uh, either uh, a particular technology feeds on itself. So I can use uh, biotechnology to find new nanomachines in the wild, turn them into new biotechnologies. Though we can use those biotechnologies to engineer new biotechnologies and get a, a tight loop. Or we can have a bigger loop where the biotech, where the uh, artificial intelligence will help us build biotechnology, will help us build artificial intelligence. Um, but the point is, all these things are actually in that in the, the more of them we have, the more we get, and, and it just goes exponential. Um, that can buy us all kinds of medium to short term benefits uh, because it's going so fast now. It, um, it's not unusual to, to be able to get. Breakthroughs that allow us to that may allow us to conquer malaria and Lyme disease by engineering the, the animal vectors of those, uh, to to cure our transplantation crisis by engineering pigs to be humanized enough so that they can um, be organ donors. That may have its own little autocatalytic loop because because it's hard to debug enhancement in human beings you can enhance the organs, the pig organs, so that they're resistant to, to, vi to viruses, resistant to senescence, resistant to cancer, um, maybe cryopreservable in a way that 
that normally, and, and you can work out this whole preventative medicine, this whole enhancement medicine in pigs that are go, that are headed for desperately ill people. So it's there's no ethic, the, the, the ethics is well aligned. Um, a desperately ill person, you want to give them the best organ you can, including enhancements that would help that. So that there's that's a whole another possible uh, uh, loop that would. Um, result in enhancement of human beings um, that um, may save us from enhancements of non-human beings. Um, and I think that's a very important. Um, all, this, all these loops that make us more intelligent, possibly more ethical, um, may also help us see opportunities that are staring us in the face. The opportunity of whether or not you want to deny our involvement in, car in climate change, there's an opportunity there for getting the climate to be what we want it to be, where we want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and um, just like we wouldn't miss an opportunity to deflect an asteroid, we wouldn't miss an opportunity to improve the crop productivity, we're probably not going to miss the opportunity to make climate what we want it to be. Um, there may not be immediate uh, alignment on that, but there's a remarkable level of alignment, even when you play the blame game and the and the belt tightening game that that, that came out of the uh, the accords uh, that the United States is not a signatory for. Um, um, or, or it was a signatory, and it may not be in the in the near future. Um, Nevertheless, there's enough consensus there, and there would probably be even more consensus if it were a win-win that didn't require sacrifice and did uh, involve preventing something that's going exponential, if it's going exponential. So anyway, I think all of these things come together um, in, a, in a time of exponential uh, change. It's not necessarily some panacea you know, that's full of abundance and, and you don't have to think about it and it's easy. Um, but there are some win-wins to be had if we think about it deeply and we talk uh, about it as if science was a real thing rather than something that's inconvenient.